Exile by Brian O'Hare. Here's a little secret. The Marine Corps needs enemies. It lives for them. Whether it's bonsai charging Japanese, Chinese hordes, or bogeyman Viet Cong, it doesn't matter. And when it can't find an enemy, the Marine Corps eats it young. And for Lieutenant Colonel Mad Mike Madigan, Battalion Commander Lieutenant Francis Keene is perfect. It all starts back in August of 91, just before the first Persian Gulf War, on deployment to Okinawa, when one of Keene's lance criminals punches out an NCO over a bar girl. Alcohol-related, as the logbook duly notes. Keene saves his ass from the brig. Mad Mike goes high and to the right. Because when the old man says, circle the wagons, you circle the goddamn wagons. As payback, King suffers every shit job and indignity. Until finally exiled to the BOQ, the bachelor's officer's quarters, and put in hack, a kind of house arrest for violating the seventh order of the sentry, to talk to no one except in the line of duty while serving as an officer of the day. So... Into exile, King goes like some biblical mystic, alone and barefoot. Word spreads. From his monk's cell in the BOQ, King receives a steady stream of enlisted Marines, of all races and ethnicities, bearing gifts of beef jerky, cans of beer, and soft-core pornography from the shelves of the PX. Even honey. The offending bar girl, the face that launched a thousand fists, makes a tray of lumpier and chow fun noodles. King becomes a folk hero, yet Mad Mike's humiliations seem only to intensify King's fame. And it's the way King bears his wounds, bordering on insubordination, that makes Mad Mike absolutely lose his shit. King is like one of those limestone caves riddling the mountains surrounding the Okinawan base, where doomed Japanese took cover from the marine fury during the war. To be blasted out by satchel charges and flamethrowers, Mad Mike is going to bunk a busted son of a bitch. That February, on the eve of the Gulf War, that most blessed of marine events since the ruin of Viet Cong and Hugh City, Mad Mike finally gets his chance. Dispatching Keane and his marines to a vacant grid coordinate, miles from the battalion, now assembling along the Kuwaiti border to load 55-gallon drums of oil onto a five-ton truck. And with each drum weighing almost 500 pounds, it's clearly a setup. They have no forklift, no special equipment, no tools other than misappropriated youth. And best of all, there will be no combat action ribbon for Keen and his men. Just since dead, Mad Mike's personal fuck you like a hitman's shot to the face at point-blank range. Now, stripped to their t-shirts and stoked with sweat, they are hard at work. The Marines shiver in the sharp air. They talk loudly as the January sun dissolves into an oily veil. It's cold, dog! They laugh. Laughing off the casual brutality of being Marines, their bosses referring to them as bodies instead of men, the long absences from family, the comic will pay. Yet they don't begrudge the Marine Corps their deal, not at all. 
it's far preferable to anonymous lives installing drywall or cable invisible men from the american fringe lives flaring hot then going cold for now at least they are marines and if that demands a ruined back or a nagging limp from loading oil drums in a far-up desert well then so be it king lends his own back to the task just like everyone else one more swinging dick just another body then something shifts in the air almost imperceptibly the marines snap too focusing like dogs catching the scent of a threat noses twitching tails erect in the distance sound of a groaning diesel engine king stands carefully using the truck bumper for support an old man at 25 and goes forward to meet the yet unseen vehicle whatever whoever it is it isn't a good thing the diesel rattles closer as the vehicle materializes in the pearly smoke the marines mass behind keen instinctively the humvee's blacked out headlights burn flatly in the sandy gloom stopping abruptly as if surprised to see keen and his men the engine cuts with a severe finality the passenger door bangs open and magmite tumbles out in a pale fury behind him corporal low uncoils his long frame apologetically from the driver's seat cautiously surveys keen's platoon calculating the odds mad mike is finished with pleasantries the possum playing the eggshell walking that shit is dead dead as dirt mad mike stands with hands on hips and squints a strict video of Wyatt Earp before gunfight at the OK Corral. Jesus Christ! Punch your goddamn shitbirds! He spits tobacco into a plastic water bottle. Just dicking around! You all waiting on a good humor man! Marines stare dumbly. Speaking of, where is he? Lieutenant Shipbird! Keen swallows hard, his throat stricken by fear as much as dehydration. Here, sir! What the fuck was that? Sound off like you got some balls, Lieutenant. Here, sir, get over here. Mad Mike stabs the air with a cocktail weenie forefinger. Right here, lad, where I can't see you. Keen obeys. Mad Mike is a Kodiak tobacco man. It's a wad. Packs his lower lip defiantly, set like a cartoon bulldog's. His wintergreen and MRE coffee sour breath blows hot on Keen's face. What kind of goat fuck you got going on here, Lieutenant? I come all the way out here to check on your slippery ass, and lo and behold, nobody's wearing helmets, no flak jackets, there's no security. You think you're at the goddamn beach? Dean stands and stares, his mind an embarrassing and sudden blank. I asked you a question, Lieutenant. You come to attention when speaking to your commanding officer. Dean stiffens to attention. Just us out here, sir. We need a forklift. Shut your goddamn suck, Lieutenant! Night Mike laughs darkly as if remembering a private joke and spits into his water bottle again, chasing it with a big league slug off a can of Coke. You know what pissing me off most? Excuses. Especially excuses made by know it all see lawyer lieutenants. The words are damp with special emphasis placed on Lieutenant. For reinforcing King's sub-shit status, just one more insubstantial goat turd in a desert full of insubstantial goat turds. Mad Mike tosses the coke can. 
matter-of-factly unholsters the 45 strapped to his chest. You know what this is? Keen stares at the weapon. It's a 45, sir! No fucking shit. You know what else this is? My authority says I can do whatever the fuck I want. Mac Mike chambers around. You understand who's running the show here, right? He raises the pistol above their heads. It bangs suddenly three times like a judge's gavel. The spent brass clinking onto the pack saying, I am! He points the pistol accusingly at King. I find you guilty of being a disloyal fuck. Give me your bars and get in the back of the Humvee, Lieutenant. I'm relieving you of your command. King clears his throat. Considers his words. Sir, my father always said, you point a weapon at a man, you better be ready to kill him. Mad Mike leans into Kane, his attention feral, almost carnal, under different circumstances, possibly a prelude to a kiss. But there will be no kiss. Warily, Kane waits for the punchline as Mad Mike lets out a long, slow belch. Turning to smile, a pleased smile at Lowe and then back at Keen. Wild turkey and warm coke, the speciality of the house. The official drink of the Persian Gulf War, courtesy, no doubt, of the degenerates running the AT&T tent back at Manifer. The tang of booze lingers stubbornly on the crockpot slurry of Mad Mike's breath. This is what I think of you, and your old man. Mad Mike attempts to reholster his pistol after several tries. He gives up, holding the pistol in his hand. Fuck this dicking around! Keen dares to look at Mad Mike. Cut shorter, twenty years older and a thousand beers heavier. This raw fact slow to take hold as the first dregs of sobriety stir in Mad Mike's head. Give me your bars and get in the back of the vehicle, Lieutenant, now! Surely this order is rooted in a ingrained faith in the established order of things, trappings of a rational society where a place where citizens stop at stop signs and said please and thank you and all Marines well-trained and respect small pieces of metal on an officer's collar denote and say to some rank, this is not that place. King remains silent. He smiles with a directness and simplicity acknowledging for a brief moment their shared intimacy. Mad Mike waves the pistol impatiently as if swatting an annoying bug. Let's go, Lieutenant! Keen slaps the forty-five from Mad Mike's hand, ejecting the round from the chamber and the magazine from the grip. He launches the magazine off into the wind, watching as it sails off. Mad Mike's eye twitches almost imperceptibly. Like a drill instructor to a new recruit, Keen presents the weapon butt first to Mad Mike, whispering, Muscle discipline, sir! There is no return. Mad Mike at least understands that. He steps back from Keen, takes a defiant stream of Kodiak fly into the dirt, and announces to the darkening air, I don't have time to hold your hand, Lieutenant. I've got a war to win, a nation to liberate, bad guys to punish. Get that vehicle back to battalion, ASAP. Mad Mike wheels on his boot and beelines back for the Humvee, barking at low, saddle up. Low refolds his body back into the cramped vehicle as Mad Mike stares straight ahead and the Humvee jars awake, does a slow U-turn and disappears into the orange-rind twilight.
back to the war and the glory. Keen watches as the Humvee melts away, its uncertain diesel growing fainter until, finally, all is silent again. Turns to his marine. They regard one another as opposite shores, across a great gulf, in terms of rank, certainly, but also in terms of race and even class. But they understand something about each other, undefinable, something that cannot be put into mere words or even spoken out loud, something ancient. War is inevitable, without end. You choose your sides, there are no guarantees. There will always be another Mad Mike. He'll be there. Always. And like the Marine Corps itself, Mad Mike is as immortal as the snow globe desert dust now surrounding them. So, while the night wind snakes across the dusty floor, keen eyeballs the old drums, just dark shapes now. Spits. She's Ended Up Middle-Aged by Alex Owen Netflix is like fireflies in my boyfriend's glazed eyes. He's had a hard day at work. I've had a boring, overpaid one. We've been sat in silence for maybe an hour while a binge-watch mends our relationship. I'm nursing a smudged, warm glass of wine, flashing a flirty glance at him now and then, wiggling my feet on his lap peeking up from my phone. Am I paying attention? Am I being mindful? I'm not sure. Scrolling through Facebook, I'm half-heartedly wondering whether to go plant-based. Hmm. Let's think about this. I don't know if it suits me. See, I'm that kind of mid-range millennial, around 30, but in denial. Sure, with a sustainable conscience, but a reluctance to get rid of single-use plastics and a fear that zero wasters are coming for our fun. That does not a vegan make. But there are others like me too. We might have a left-leaning sympathy, having come of age in the financial crisis, but we're undoubtedly the children of Blair, greedy and not yet woke from the neoliberalist nightmare. We're the disillusioned and entitled ones, the somnolently shit-faced mavericks of apathy who have alcohol with breakfast and call it brunch. That kind of person. I throw down my phone in a strop and finish my wine. My boyfriend looks at me briefly, in acknowledgement, not affection, and returns to the TV. I fetch another glass. I pick up my phone again, annoyed at Facebook, so switch to Instagram, thumb through the rabbit hole. Gets me thinking... I had a friend once, nice girl, she's older than me, hated kids, hated marriage, called herself a Marxist, went on a few demonstrations in her college days, even protested outside Parliament once. I don't think she ever knew what she was protesting against, but she said it was one hell of a good time. Then, one day, many years later, good career, good apartment, good friends, good partner, she found herself with an empty diary. Good Lord stretching empty blocks of days like a vacant periodic table, flipping the pages, flip, flip, absolutely nothing, nothing, nothing. 
daily work, weekly shop, visit brother, declutter wardrobe, that kind of thing. On and on until she hit her summer holiday in June. Something to look forward to. But apart from the errands, there was nothing but white space from February until June. She was horrified. Absolutely horrified. Even the approaching weekend contained only buy birthday card for Holly. Monday, post it. That was the lot. Was Holly even celebrating? When would they get together? What was happening? My friend had found herself, as if by accident, organised but unhappy. When her partner Jason got back from work that evening, she said to him, let's go down to the pub tonight, have a couple of drinks, I need to let my hair down. And Jason replied, not tonight, love, it's a Wednesday and I've got a busy day tomorrow. So they stayed in and had a jacket potato and went to bed at a reasonable hour. She had a good day at the office the next day and even toyed with the idea of asking her colleagues if they fancied a drink. But she couldn't risk it. She wouldn't dare, in case she got horrendously drunk and had to face these people in the morning. No. So she decided against it. At home, she put on her running kit and forced herself out for a run around the park in the sunset. There were dog walkers, toddlers, parents arriving home from work. There were baby bumps and gossipers and school children on corners. There were buggies on pavements and pensioners in gardens and it was a good run, a productive run. The world was nice. Very, very nice. And she thought to herself that she was still young, fit and healthy. And this was a thoroughly good life. A nice life. She got home, pleased with herself, feeling unstoppable and grown up, even accomplished. And Jason was already there, with his feet up, watching a talk show. They kissed and she showered and this was a thoroughly good life indeed. She ate smashed avocado on rye bread that night, and feeling cleansed and fashionable, she decided to message her friend Holly and ask when she was celebrating her birthday. But Holly answered back, many hours later, saying that she just didn't have the time. Barnaby was teething and her husband was away for the week. Forget her then. Remember to buy the birthday card. So my friend asked her partner, Jason, why don't we book a table for Friday night and ask a couple of the guys round? To which he replied, yes, absolutely, let's go for it. So come the Friday morning, she told her closest friends she'd booked a fancy restaurant and who was free for a spur-of-the-moment slap-up meal. But nobody was. Everybody was busy, with kids, with work, with whatever. So she cancelled her reservation and they had fish and chips at home. She went for five runs the next week, and then had a binge on chocolate fudge cake. Felt bad, felt fat, felt like a failure. Got promoted at work. Holly had a gathering on the Saturday. Kids welcome, and she'd set up a buffet in the living room. Prosciutto, cheeses, freshly baked rolls. And then everybody went home. A baby had burped in her face, and the wine ran out at two. Before she knew it, eight months had passed like that. And after some inheritance from Jason's side, they had enough for a down payment and they secured a mortgage, moved out of London. She would never see her friends more than three times a year again. 
By the December, she had tried to arrange a Halloween extravaganza, a bonfire night, a wine-tasting event, and a Christmas meal. But nobody had ever turned up. On New Year's Eve, they had a takeaway and watched it on television. At eleven, she asked Jason if he wanted to go out, and he said no. She was tumbling, tumbling, tumbling. Everyone around her stooped and suffocating. Simplicity gone, just no, no, no. And there, in that moment, she found herself thirty-four and desperate for a party. So she turned to Jason that night and said, "Will you marry me?" And he said, "Yes." The following summer they were wed, and her diary had been full the whole time. She'd had a hen weekend and rehearsals, table plans and outfit designs, celebration meals and catering samples, and for the ceremony, everybody came. Somehow they found the time. They all danced and drank and sang and onwards and upwards to the honeymoon. Beautiful it was, all of it, and the afterglow lasted for ever. Except it didn't. Three months later, it was somebody else's turn, and when she tried to organise her thirty-sixth birthday party, nobody could come because they were all saving for the weddings. Instead, she redecorated the house. When it was done, she arranged a second housewarming, but nobody could come. What with work and the weddings, there just wasn't enough time for everything to do, and yet we still spend time without ever doing anything. Minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years, new diaries. As the wedding subsided, they had started in her twenties. They were replaced with baby showers, and everybody else's life was costing her a fortune. But still, she tried. She tried. She tried, having to run harder and for longer to achieve the body she once had for free. And she tried, she kept trying to have that very last big night out, to have dinners, to have drinks, to have dancing and laughter and freedom. She wanted to be blitzed or to be bored, to have time to do nothing instead of nothing, and no time with nothing ahead to differentiate the nothing behind. All the while, her relationship dried and distanced. They loved each other, yes, but they were bound not by touch and rapture. But by habit and routine, and she longed for the days when their parties, when they had them, ended in paroxysmal sex, drunken and fully clothed, too impatient to disrobe. But where now was the kinship and connection? Where was the understanding and affinity, the exchange of ideas, the interest with anyone? It was like the days of her teens, through which she thought nobody had understood her. Classic, except now it was true. And on top of that, she was losing her face, losing her body, losing the things she'd never known were so good. She used to hate her ass, but now it seemed ten times bigger, baggier, bumpier. She used to hate her fake ID, but now nobody ever asked for her real one. We spend all that time trying to be older. Now she looked her age. She told Jason they should rediscover their sex life, and he said, "We will, we will." So they always set aside the time, 
this Friday night, that Saturday morning. But the scheduling of it put her off, and the expectation of it let them down. One evening she kissed his neck before realising he was engrossed in his phone. It was closeness, an affection, intimacy she needed, and there, in that moment, she found herself. Forty-one, and desperate for a fuck. So she turned to Jason and said, Should we try for kids? And he said, Yes. Then came nights of entanglement and new positions, and exciting diets, and parenting books, and pregnancy magazines, and a positive result. There were scans and celebrations. There were friends rallying round and stroking the bump. There was hope and the happy unknown. And out there in that unknown was now. Today. The happy unknown. And a flat family portrait on her Instagram glowing up at me from my feed. I hover over it before tapping my like. Is it me? Or is it my future? I had a friend once. She's ended up middle-aged with an anxiety problem and an eye on retirement. That's the end of it. I only ever see her online now. I'd always thought she'd been robbed of her life. Never knew who the thief was. But I used to look at her and think, that will never, ever be me. I turned to look at my boyfriend, beautiful but tired in the bare midwinter. Netflix in his eyes like fireflies and say, Will you marry me? Befriending by Irina Zal Read by Greg Page I watch them walking up the hill. They're only starting on their journey. They sound happy. They're singing and swinging their arms cheerfully in time. I can't see from where I am, but I'm sure their skin is golden in the summer sun and their muscles bulge ever so slightly with every step they take. By a habit I didn't know I had, I raise my hand to give them a wave. I catch myself halfway and put it down. They can't see me from where I am, from where they are, and they don't know me anyway. It's me watching life from my kitchen window. It's them living it. The worst thing about age is not the aches, not the persistent chills, not the sagging skin, not even the liver spots. The worst part is living in the past tense. I used to. Used to be, used to do. In the present I'm nothing. An old man in his small retirement flat, still able to take care of himself. But this is as exciting as it gets. It's only the past that gives me the meaning that justifies my existence. In my present state, I'm of no interest to the world, or to those lads walking up the hills. I move away from the window and decide to wash my teacup, but it's already washed. My newspaper is already read, and my breakfast is eaten. There isn't much to do, and it's only 8.31am. Why do I wake up so early? 
I go into the sitting room. It's called a room, but in reality it shares the space with the kitchen. When I was looking at flats before I bought this one, they told me it was in fashion. It was contemporary. Open-plan living, they called it. It doesn't make much sense to me. A room has four walls and a door. My sitting room shares walls with the kitchen, and I can see the sink from my settee. But I don't mind. In fact, it's quite convenient. I can make cups of tea whilst watching TV, and I can see the mountains from the window. That's why I bought the flat. I sit down and think back to the past, the only thing that justifies my existence. Or does it? As I grew older, I got tired of having to justify myself. I finally stopped looking for faults in me, stopped feeling guilty for no reason. It was when I was younger that I felt I had to make excuses. I'd grown so used to saying sorry that it stopped having a meaning. I never doubted that something was wrong with me, with me and not with the world, so I played along. I took up a role. I was what I was expected to be. There were longings, of course, and at times they were hard to fight, like that time when I was in London for work, 1971. I saw them, and they were not like me. They were defiant, daring, staring the world in its face, proclaiming their existence at no matter what cost. I wished I was like them. I wished I didn't care what others thought, but I couldn't. There was a price to pay for not caring. Not in the world where you were called a pedo if you were caught holding hands with another man. What's wrong with people? Is it that difficult to know the difference between a paedophile and a homosexual? A, a gay man, as they call it now. <laughs> now they understand. Now it's all right to be proud. In the 1970s, it didn't make a difference whether you murdered, touched kids or kissed another man. They punched you in the face, in the ribs, anywhere they could. You couldn't go to the police. You were lucky if the police didn't come for you. You were lucky to stay alive. So there was nothing for me to be proud of in the 1970s. I look at the window. From where I am, I can see them making steady progress. Their energy still high, their arms still swinging to the tune that has become too faint for me to hear. I wish I could join them. What would they think of me today? Would they be more accepting? I don't think they would care. To them, I would just be an old man defined by his lack of muscle mass and by the drag of his feet. A man who would be too much of a liability to take along. A man who would bore them to death with the stories they don't want to hear. I look at the time. 9.27. How much longer? The problem of being old is the one of not being needed. They call it companionship, but it's deeper than that. Beryl was lucky to die before me while she was still needed, and she still is, by me. She was my wife, but really she was my friend, my best and only, the only person who knew and understood. She didn't approve, in tune with the time. She believed that my homosexual tendencies weren't healthy. 
but she didn't judge, and she accepted. She treated me like I was ill and I needed care, and I did. I was lucky she never liked sex, or maybe it was my fault that she never got to like it, but in a way it was a perfect marriage, us being together and giving each other the comfort we needed. Back then, I never wondered if I loved her. I know now that I did. I still do. It's terrible not to have anyone needing you. It's not the same as getting a few visits a year from the son or bi-weekly phone calls from the grandchildren. When Beryl died, my son said I should get a dog for companionship. <laughs> I laughed. Companionship, all right, but the dog won't hold you through the night. Won't kiss it better. You can't explain it to the council. Not when they offer you weekly visits from a befriender. I asked a who. They said, Mr. Roberts, this person will visit you once a week. You can watch TV, do crosswords, chat, go for walks. I thought, thank you very much, I can do crosswords on my own. You can't explain to those people that what you really need is someone to stroke your hair, to hold you when you're feeling blue, to squeeze your hand, like Beryl did. So, thank you, but no thank you. I'll find my own befriender if I want one. 10.16. How much longer to go? I stand up and look at the mountain. The walkers have completely disappeared from view devoured by the curve of the path and by the overgrowth. I wonder if they are happy. Behind their youth and their singing and their rippling muscles, I wonder what happiness is to them. Can they be the people they want to be? The people they are? Can they live their dreams? Give in to their longings? I gave in once. A random man at a conference I knew I would not see again. The safe space of a foreign country, of a hotel never to return to, of an encounter never to repeat. Already nearly in my forties, for one night only, the real me was set free. The one night of true passion I've ever known. I want to believe that I still remember his hands, the slant of his shoulders, the bristles on the back of his neck. Over the years, my imagination has filled in the gaps, coloured in the green of his eyes, added some red to his lips, drew a line at the corner of his mouth, which would twist every time he smiles. I even gave him a past, and a future. A partner he would grow old with, a happy ever after. This is the one thing you learn about the past. You can't rely on it. Our minds end up telling us the stories we want to hear, blending the lines between the true and the make-believe. I know the truth, though. I cannot escape it. It was the happiest night of my life, and he wanted to see me again. But I ran away. I didn't take his number, and I didn't give mine. Was it self-preservation or fear? Does the past justify that I was a coward? I look at the clock. 
time crawls. I walk around the flat and readjust the cushions. I look in the mirror and wonder if I should change my shirt. Should I? Why? Does it really matter? I change it anyway and I comb my hair. What's left of it? My heart is beating fast. Did I remember to take my medicine today? The doorbell rings. Just a minute, I shout, while I take my time. I can easily reach the door, but I want to come across like I'm busy, so I clink some plates and turn the tap on. I laugh and shout, I'll, I'll call you later, into the emptiness, which I pretend is my phone. I count to ten. Finally, he walks in. How are you, Alberto? You are looking well. I like it how he says my name in a foreign manner. Albert. Alberto. I offer a cup of tea. He declines. Maybe later. He knows how I like things, so instead he moves to the window. I like the view from here, he says, turning his back to me, offering the privacy I need. I go into the bedroom. I don't like being watched. When he walks in, I'm already in bed. I watch him undress. He has a beautiful body. I asked him once how old he was. He said, twenty-six. Twenty-six. He may as well be a baby. At my age, it's hard to believe there are twenty-six-year-olds in the world. Twenty-six, forty, thirty-one, twenty-two. It's all the same to me. He's only a boy with a man's body. A strong, beautiful, desirable body. He climbs into the bed next to me. His hand slides over me under the covers. I feel his legs scooping mine. He feels warm. He smells of something sweet. I like the smell. I like the feel of him. He holds me tight for a while, the way he knows I like it, the way I need it. He hums something softly in a language I don't understand, like a lullaby a mother might sing to her child. He knows exactly when I have indulged in the stillness. How are you, Alberto? he asks, and he strokes my hair the way Beryl used to. He moves onto my neck and says... I've missed you since last week. It doesn't occur to me to question whether it may be true. There is only the sound of his voice and his body. Warm, real, living body pressed to mine. His hands. So gentle they could be a woman's. Gradually wake something in me a woman never could. I turn and press my lips on his. Afterwards, our exchange always happens very subtly. I put the money by his teacup. He takes it without counting, without thank you, okay, or any other words. He makes it seem as if it's not a simple business transaction for him. This boy, so young, he understands the things I only learnt with age. Alberto, 
he says, moving the teacup away from his face, and I watch his tongue pick up a drop of liquid from his bottom lip. Alberto, I'm not in a rush today. Would you like to do anything? Would you like to do crosswords with me? Advice to my child by Joe Gatford Carbohydrates are all well and good when you're tired and hangry, but they are not a substitute for a hug or a conversation. Speaking of, call your mother more often, or at least text. I have WhatsApp now, you know. I follow you on Instagram. You're cute, but vary the expression a little, why don't you? Meringues should always be left in the oven to cool, preferably overnight, like most things, if you really want that chewy centre and clarity of crunch. Keep good accounts. Air your bathroom. Stay hydrated. Get a dehumidifier. Don't waste time on books you can't finish. Insure yourself. Overpay your mortgage whenever you can. If you ever get one. Don't overcrowd the pan if you want things to turn out crispy. Wait until the oil's hot before you throw in the ingredients. That could be a metaphor, if you're looking for that kind of thing. Rehabilitate your skin. It doesn't need half the shit you put on it. It's a racket. Do you know how many years I spent moisturising skin that already knew how to heal itself? Be a good host. Offer visitors a cup of tea at least three times upon welcoming them into your home. They would try to be polite and turn you down, but you must persist. If they still refuse, do not trust them. Life is rarely fair, but I never understood why people thought it should be. Don't look to blame other people for your own guilt. There's no dark side, but shame leads to anger. And in a man, that's frightening. And in a woman, it's hysterical. Be vengeful, sure. Be enraged. But stay calm about it. Cold and efficient. Make it work for you, instead of eating you up inside. Cereal is not an adequate dinner, and I know you know this. No, not even granola. Give compliments freely, but not creepily, and always sincerely. There will be days when you can pinpoint the infinite beauty of humankind and want to dissect it on the kitchen table. And on those days, you should ride the bus and memorise as many faces as you can. Fill yourself up with people to offset the days when all you can see are upright mammals made of poison and fists and excretions and threats and sex and melancholy. There will be days when you are also the latter type. Take note of the moments you are not 
and pin a good picture of yourself on the wall to use instead of a mirror. Learn to make white sauce from scratch and witness alchemy in the thickening. Stirring is a meditation. Meditation is a pause, a bath, a cigarette, a closing of the eyes, a silence when you want to be screaming. Practice saying no. No qualifiers, no excuses, no apologies. Hold up your hand with your palm straight out and pull the word out from the bottom of your lungs. You can freeze grown men that way. To poach perfect eggs, you want to use a frying pan and wait until the bubbles just begin to form on the bottom. None of this rolling boil and vinegar and whisking nonsense. Just a hint of a simmer. Then slide them in like slipping a sleeping child into a cot and let them be. Wait until the sun is over the yard arm before partaking in things that make your brain forget it's a brain. Know that there's a gene inside you that will try to take control of your ability to refuse oblivion. It lies dormant in me, even though I try to coax it out with the romanticism of a tortured artist. But thankfully I am not your grandfather, so I will never be any good at being drunk. They say it skips a generation though, so have caution. I have poured enough bottles down the drain. I don't need your empties too. There's nothing in the world a little extra salt can't fix. Season liberally. Drink the tears that run into your mouth. Swim in the sea whenever you can. Be good. Even though there is badness all around you. Badness you can't see, like germs, or electricity, or the wind. There's bad in you too, and me. Bad in everyone. Which maybe means it's not so bad. It just is. And all you can do is make good choices. Nothing good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. You should know who said that, or I have failed in my literary teachings. He couldn't work out the difference either, so fuck it. Just do your best. Fuck is a bad word. You've probably heard me say it. But really, it's just another way of saying God. Which is meaningless in the end, too. I take it back about the carbs. Sometimes a potato can be a friend. Baked with plenty of butter. Fried in plenty of butter, mashed all the butter. A potato doesn't need you to explain yourself. It just leaves a warmth in your belly and a strength for another day. Create patience when you have none. Count to 10 and 10 again. Even when people are walking slowly in front of you and stop randomly on the street, create patience. Even when your own children procrastinate at bedtime, just like you used to. And you want to smother them with a pillow or throw them out the window, even though you wouldn't. Probably. 
but you want to all the same. Create patience out of air. Even when your mother calls to tell you about the person you might know who she thinks you went to school with, or maybe they weren't in your year. Either way, you have no interest at all in the development of their life, but there is no escaping the telling of it, because this unknown person's mother still lives in your hometown and met your mother the other day at the supermarket, and she's sure you do know them. You must know them. And anyway, they just had a baby and are moving to Berlin. I know that sometimes I tell you these things just to have something to say. And your patience is a gift. A watched pot will boil eventually if you sit quietly and just wait. You will find patience sometimes, the same way I have, when time moves differently, like a snake in water, never sure if it's swimming or being moved by the current. When you realise that sometimes patience is all you have. I must have passed someone to you when you made your way out of me. I had enough reasons to wait then. In a place where there was no time at all. Only heartbeats and waves and more blood and power than I knew was inside a person. And patience replaced any concept of time while they resuscitated you on the bare boards of the living room floor. And I wasn't allowed to lift you out of the plastic box full of wires that kept you alive after my pelvis refused to let you go. I hope you never discover that treacle-thick time. But chances are you will. Missing a step on the stairs, watching your kids slip and fall and hearing the thud of concrete on precious flesh. It is your job to keep seamless. Waiting for an ambulance. Waiting for news you don't want to hear. Never enough time to stop it happening. But time enough for the vision of it to seep into the little valleys of your brain. To see it all over again in more detail than you thought possible when you wake at 3am shivering out the PTSD. There will be too much patience then more than you can bear, and still maintain the facade of a media-ready human being. And that's when you bottle it. Your time, and your patience, and your good deeds. Store them up for middle age, when everything moves more slowly. Except the distancing of your children, and the dying of your parents. Love your food. Nourish the body I gave you. Don't let anyone tell you it's wrong in any infinitesimal way. It houses everything that keeps you alive. Love me, even when you hate me. Even when biology gives out to individuality and you realise you have no godly reason to care for the wound that tried to suffocate you. Even then, Know that you left your cells behind, drifting in my bloodstream, and I can never flush them out. But I will never lose the trickle of pinpricks in my milk ducts when the memory of you gets out a mushroom cloud of oxytocin.
know that I tried. I tried. I really did. I'm trying still. And you will too, if you get your turn. And, just like me, you'll get it wrong. The Blue Man of the Minch by Matt Barnard Just after eleven, Colin raced down the hill to tell Johnny Day that one of Marjorie's cows was calving. No more than eight years old, with hair cropped so close you could see the bones of his skull, his face shone with a look of wonder and self-importance. When he told Johnny the news, Johnny simply gazed at him with an expression of unselfconscious weariness. He was sitting on the front step, elbows resting on his knees, his stomach like a medicine ball between his thighs. The sun fell onto his face from the right, making him squint a little. Colin stared at Johnny and felt the way he did when he saw something strange emerge from the sea. He'd run down the hill with the, the message held like a special package, not sure exactly what it meant, only that it was important. It was unclear to him why he was telling Johnny Day, and now, standing awkwardly in the mid-morning sun, he realised he didn't know what he was expected to take back in return. Aye, that'll be Frida, Johnny replied eventually, putting a large hand to his face to shield his eyes. Tell Marjorie to keep an eye out. Let me know what's happening. Can you remember that, Colin? Colin looked at him with all the indignation an eight-year-old could muster, turned tail and with a final dismissive look over his shoulder, sped off back up the hill. At one o'clock, he was sent down the hill again. Johnny was still on the front step, but, but Colin immediately felt the difference in him. The sun was now high in the sky, and the, the squint had been replaced by a mysterious, sly wink. His frame, which had seemed laden down only a few hours earlier, had become rooted and unshakable. To Colin, he was more mysterious, more intriguing, more unnerving than ever. The tremor that shook his insides made him approach with caution, ready to take flight, like the birds that cleaned the teeth of crocodiles he'd once seen in a nature programme. Johnny was talking to Neil the Bog, who lived a mile from the shore and whose clothes and skin both seemed to have taken on the same grey-green colour. 
Johnny broke off from the conversation and turned his glittering eyes on the boy. So, how are things going up there? You're coming to tell me a new calf's been born, eh? Colin's brow furrowed, sensing the laughter in Johnny's voice. No, the calf's not born yet, Mr. D, he said, adding with complete sincerity. But Marjorie says to tell you that things are going well enough and you can stop brewing your potions. <laughs> I can stop brewing my potions. Johnny gave a low chuckle and felt like a cat's tail slipping under a leg. Tell me, how did things look? Well... Colin began, pleased to be asked his opinion, but not sure how to answer. Well, everything had seemed to be exactly the same as it had been when he'd come the first time. Frida on the floor, breathing heavily, occasionally lifting her head into the air and <laughs> blowing violently through empurpled nostrils. Things were looking well enough, he concluded. Johnny smiled broadly at him and gave a quick wink at Neil, who returned the gesture with an almost imperceptible nod of the head before announcing that he had to go. Johnny and Colin both watched him walk down the path into the bog. And then Johnny turned back to Colin and studied him carefully. How old are you now, Colin? Colin told him. And Johnny looked at him again, rocking back so that his stomach stuck straight out above his thighs. I was about your age when I had my first nip. What do you say? Something to put hairs on your chest? What's a nip? Colin queried, making Johnny <laughs> let out a ringing laugh. Come on, let me show you, he said. Inside Johnny's house it was dark and smelt strange, and the heat from the rayburn made it hard to breathe. On the worn front room carpet, which had a lurid, multicoloured pattern, were piles of old newspapers, some of which had bits of farm machinery sitting on them. Johnny threaded his way towards a wooden cabinet in the corner and extracted a bottle. There was one glass on top of the cabinet, and he had to cast around for another. He found one on the floor, gave it a quick sniff, then polished it with his jumper. He poured himself two inches, drank it swiftly, poured himself another couple of inches, and put significantly less in the glass he handed to Colin. Cautiously, Colin smelt it and looked up. Go on, give it a go, Johnny urged him. He put the glass to his lips, screwed up his eyes, 
and took a sip. <coughs> it felt like his mouth was burning. <coughs> <laughs> Not to worry, lad, Johnny said, laughing loudly and thumping Colin on the back. Oh, I was just the same when I had my first one. Tears in his eyes. <coughs> Snot <coughs> and whiskey <coughs> coming out of his nose and <coughs> still coughing. <laughs> Colin couldn't help laughing along. At half two, Colin asked if he should go and let Johnny know the news. What news? they answered, Frida's condition having changed but little in the previous hour. But still it would get the boy out from under their feet. It wasn't <laughs> for another taste of the whisky. Colin, well, it was Johnny that Colin was drawn to. He was different from all the other people Colin knew, who talked mostly about the weather and church and who was getting married to whom. When he got down to the house, he was surprised to find that Johnny wasn't on the front step anymore. He wandered around to the other side of the house and found Johnny sitting on the ground with his back against the wall. His eyes closed. He seemed to be asleep, and Colin didn't want to wake him. Just as he was about to go, he saw Johnny's eyes open and look straight through him. Caught in his gaze, Colin felt his stomach turn. The eyes didn't show any signs of recognition. And then... Johnny gave his face a rub, shook his head once or twice, and his face cracked into a smile. Oh, oh, give me a hand up, lad. Oh, I've got something to show you. Colin took hold of the large hand that Johnny offered. It felt leathery and hard, but he pulled on it and Johnny started rising. But then, oh, Johnny's weight pulled him back to the ground, with Colin almost on top of him. They tried again, and this time, with Colin's other hand pushing against the wall of the house, they, uh, Johnny struggling, they, 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 they got him upright. He wavered for a few moments, and then found his feet, oh, and gripped Colin's shoulders. Oh, 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 watch this, my boy. Just watch this. From out of his pocket, Johnny took two L-shaped metal rods that looked like wire coat hangers with wooden handles. He held them out in front of him, his elbows pressed against the sides of his body. What you do see is you hold them angled down slightly so they have to go against gravity to cross. And when they do, 
that's where the water is. With surprising steadiness, Johnny started walking forwards and looking at a spot about two feet in front of him. Colin walked beside him, watching the metal rods. After six or seven steps, he saw the wires move towards each other and then cross. Johnny looked at him with triumph in his eyes. He stepped backwards. They uncrossed, then forwards again, and they crossed once more. Now I know that there are water pipes here. He dug his heel into the ground, because when the water board came, they couldn't find them. So they asked me to. Colin looked at him with a new sense of respect. Here, lad, you have a go, he said. Colin stepped forward and gingerly took the rods and felt the warm wood settle into the palms of his hands. At five, Colin was sent down the hill to fetch Johnny back. Frida was in trouble. Colin knew that from the look on their faces and the way they were talking, but but he could also tell from Frida herself. There was something about her, the way she was breathing. When he got down there, Johnny's house was quiet, and there seemed to be no one around. Johnny wasn't on the front step, or round the back, and he couldn't see Mrs Day in the kitchen when he pressed his nose to the window. He decided to knock at the back door. There was no answer, so he called out. But the, the, the house remained silent. He didn't want to go in, but the image of Frida came into his head and he knew he couldn't go back. He pushed the door open and stepped inside. It was cooler than before, but still dark. He crept along the corridor towards the front room. Well, it looked just the same. Uh, newspapers and bits of machinery, but, but a clock he hadn't noticed before was ticking loudly somewhere. Then, near a corner, he saw a chair with Johnny slumped in it. His head had fallen forward and one arm was stretched awkwardly over the armrest. And on the floor by the chair was a glass on its side. He walked towards the chair. And was relieved to hear the sound of Johnny's breathing as he got close. Mr. D, he whispered. Mr. D, it's Frida. They say you've got to come. Johnny didn't move. Colin gritted his teeth and then repeated himself more loudly. Still nothing. He shouted, Mr. D! And Johnny stirred. Ugh. And then was still. So he shouted again, Mr. D! Mr. D! And this time he shook Johnny by the shoulders and finally Johnny woke up. Ah, what's going on? Ugh. 
he said blearily. They say you're needed for Frida up at Marjorie's, Colin said. Johnny grunted an answer and hauled himself to his feet. Colin waited. But when Johnny didn't move, he started aging towards the door as if to encourage him, saying they should hurry. Johnny finally started moving and followed Colin out of the house. Up the hill, Colin could see Marjorie's black house, long and low with its new tin roof glinting in the evening light. On the way, he kept encouraging Johnny with little movements and comments of how they were nearly there. Nearly there! Like he was coaxing the township bull back to its field, and all the time desperately aware of how long it was taking, and that on his own he could have made the journey almost in an instant. At half six, Colin led Johnny out of the black house. Both the cow and her calf doing well. Johnny's hands had seemed to know what they were doing on their own, like the hands of the girls who gutted the mackerel. On the brow of the hill, they stopped and looked out across the minch. Close in, they could see small islands where seals basked. And farther out, the jagged outline of the outer isles. Johnny was lost in his own world, and somehow the sun seemed to be passing right through him, as though he were a stained glass window. And then Johnny looked up to where the stars were emerging in the sky. Oh! Wouldn't it be something to catch him? Johnny said, half to Colin, half to himself. Catch him and sew him so they grow diamonds. Great, fat diamonds hanging on trees. And all you'd need to do is go and pick them off like apples. Ah! He stretched up, standing on tiptoes. Colin watched as Johnny's fingers grasped delicately for the small dots of light, half expecting him to touch one. In the Round by Sarah Richardson The boot gleams in the firelight, its worn leather restored to black, not dull black, like seaweed baked too long in the sun. No, today's boots' blackness is rich and deep. Margaret lifts it closer to her face, inspects one side and then the other. That'll do. She sets it gently on the newspaper sheets in front of her. Rows of type talking of politics and people she cares nothing for. And she tightens the lid on the polish. Kiwi. The distinctive tang couples with the scent of men whose boots have lined the hallways of her life. Grandpa. Dad. Her own Sid. This boot, one of Sid's finest, is now the only one that calls on her labour. 
and she's not done badly with it at all. Resting her hand on the fireplace, Margaret eases herself up from her wooden dining chair and shuffles a few steps to the window. Away from the coal's warmth, her breath causes the glass to mist. Outside, spring is still tussling with the end of winter, and evening darkness has brought a crisp chill. At the end of the street, the gaudy lights that mark out the ship and swan sway wildly. The shrub they cling to strains in the wind. Margaret checks her watch. 8.30. She should be heading over soon. She thinks momentarily of her grandchildren, 300 miles away in London. Andrew and Joanne will be trying to get them off to bed. Or at least Andrew will. Her daughter-in-law, she has long suspected, is more after her own heart. Holidays, Easter included, are a time for rules to be broken, clocks to be stopped. Andrew's anxious tendencies crept up on Margaret, crab-like. She cannot recall at all the moment when he changed from the reckless boy who would chase breakers in a storm to the cautious, proper shirt even on a Saturday man he has become. On Andrew's last visit to Lou, made as usual the first weekend in March, Oh, you best just I come down early if you want to see the kids. Remember that year you had snow in April? Margaret had watched his hand clench when Joanne asked if she would join her neighbours at the Swan on Easter's Eve. She always expected some disapproval. It's one of the joys of age to be disapproved by your offspring. But the bluntness, the ignorance of his interruption had forced blood to her sallow cheeks. That new barman... Andrew had said loudly, dismissively, as if he hadn't been in there himself, drinking till the bell both nights of his stay, scrutinising the propriety of the man he knew full well was the new proprietor. That new barman will want to do things his own way, Mum. He'll have craft beer, bookings, an indie classics playlist. He's not going to want to be serving you and your random friends that bloody moonshine. And that's a good thing, Mum. You shouldn't be out there when it's dark. Learn to leave things in the past. Margaret had replied that there was as good a chance she wouldn't go as there was of a month's worth of snow blockading the southwest in the run-up to Good Friday. Andrew didn't seem to enjoy the response nearly as much as she did. Shuffling back to the hearth, Margaret reaches next to the fireplace for the other half of her soon-to-be instrument. Another reason, alongside what Andrew so darkly termed moonshine, for her son's exasperation. A long wooden stick, as tall as herself, small silver bells tied to its gnarled frame with red ribbon. Margaret strokes one, its rust's battered surface coarse even to her callous fingertips. Evening, old friend. The bell clinks a tiny reply. 
Margaret places one end of the stick inside the shiny black boot and drags the whole contraption over to her chair. Bending as low as she can, she pads the boot with handfuls of newspaper, making sure the stick is upright. Next, she works the laces, lashing them around the base to fix it in place. She lets go. The wood remains still. Not lost the knack. Margaret turns to the mirror above the fireplace. Her hair is pulled into a small silver-white bun, held in place with a black velvet clip. She pats it gently. A stray wisp brushes over her cheek. She takes her lipstick from the shelf and lightly runs it over her chapped lips, its redness covering the cracks. Done, she pulls her padded coat out of her best purple cardigan, grabs her jangling, newly reborn instrument and shuffles out into the night. The walk to the swan is only a few hundred yards, but to reach the pub takes Margaret longer than she would like anyone to know, Andrew in particular. The night air is heavy with moisture brought in by the sea and the pavement, already uneven, is starting to ice. The wind tugs at her skin and she pulls her coat around her tiny frame. More than once her footing is lost and she clings to the stick for balance, Sid's boot thudding gently against the ground. The fiddle is the first to reach her, long wavering notes that meander along the empty street, brushing past her and out into the dark sky. Tom's properly joining himself. Would you listen to that now? Another few steps and there is the soft beat of a snare pulsing a slow waltz. The door is ajar and as Margaret nudges it open more sounds from the side room tumble towards her flute, guitar, harp. The man she takes to be the new owner sporting a fleece to protect himself from sudden blasts of air looks up from the pint in his hand. Margaret, it is Margaret, isn't it? She opens her mouth to reply, but this one is clearly a talker. They've been wondering if you'd show up. Come in if you're coming in. I'm not paying to heat the bloody street. He eyes Sid's boot for what seems to Margaret like an unnecessarily long time. Then, can I tempt you with a drop of something? Behind him, bottles line the wall on deep oak shelves. Some at the end, furthest from the till, are thick with dust. Margaret tilts her head at one of these, a dark brown flagon with a faded red and gold label. Not just now, thank ye, but I'll have a splash of space rum come midnight. The owner mutters something. Seeing Margaret still in front of him, he jabs his arm in the direction of the side room. Go on, then. The rest of the rum cloud will be missing you. Margaret eyes the man. Andrew had said he was pretty young. Down from Knightsbridge, marriage blew up apparently. He's had to start again somewhere cheaper, passing it off as reinvention. Well, younger she may be, but the creases tugging at his eyes seemed to run almost as deep as her own. Compared to the bar... Empty, save the marriage crisis owner, the side room is flooded with life. The musicians, such as they are, Tom, Bob, Grace and her brother Frank, have a combined age of more than 300 and if the song they are playing is even older, 
but its haunting melody swirls against the peeling walls. Margaret knows the lyrics as well as she knows her own hands. But long may we close close together, O oh, lily white rose, cling to me. <laughs> Margaret nods at the room and edges her way towards the far corner, next to Frank on the snare. She allows herself a quick glance at the photograph behind Frank's grey ponytail. Seven young fishermen posing on the quayside with a full net. Sid in the centre. No indie classics, if such things exist, and at least for now, no tourist-friendly driftwood pictures. I will always remember you, darling, when I gaze on that lily-white rose. Margaret takes her seat, and with a loud beat from Frank, the song ends. He leans over and whispers, That's just in time, love. His voice is gruff and warm, born of tides and tobacco. Bob drags on his harp, then takes a breath. Ready, Margaret? Still recall who'll be coming round that there mountain? Margaret frowns in mock indignation. She looks to Bob, raises her instrument and slowly brings it down, striking Sid's boot against the floor. On cue... Tom raises his fiddle and slides the bow across. As the song builds, Margaret keeps a steady rhythm with the boot, banging it against the ground. Thud, jangle, thud, jangle. As the bells sound, her heart lifts. She looks around the faces in the room, her neighbours, the friends caught in faded prints, Sid, and feels some lost part of her returning. The musicians run through a dozen songs and are trying to settle on another when the owner clatters open the door, carrying a flagon with a red and gold label. Sorry to interrupt, he says, with a haste that implies he isn't, but it's five to midnight and I've bought your drinks. Lord knows how long this stuff's been there, he glances at Bob. Maybe you do though, sir? Without waiting for a laugh, which is a blessing, the owner pours shots for Margaret and Grace. He passes the flagon to Tom and nods at more glasses on a tray. Oh, you gents can sort out your own. He steps back into the bar. After a second or two, his voice is back. You'll pay for what you have, obviously. Tom swigs from the flagon and hands it to Frank. He drinks and passes it to Bob, who does the same. The spices, Lou's bestest blend, the neighbours call it, hit Margaret in a dizzying rush, cinnamon and ginger, oranges and tobacco. As she raises her glass, they mingle with the lingering scent of boot polish on her fingers. She glances coyly at the photo of Sid as she takes her first sip. Oh, the rum is stronger than she remembers. Her cheeks flush. She sips again, and seeing the clock on the wall is showing two minutes to midnight, drains the drink. Bob raises the flagon in the air. To friends and lovers, always. It sounds a low note on the harp. Margaret doesn't need to be told the song. It will be my bonnie, remembrance and reunion. The musicians take up their instruments 
But this time there is no fiddle, no flute, no snare. Each man and woman holds a long wooden stick. On the ends an assortment of boots and shoes, worn, faded, but each in the pub's low light shining. Frank clears his throat and begins in a low baritone. My bonnie lies over the ocean. The reply comes from Grace. My bonnie lies over the sea. And Tom. My bonnie lies over the ocean. And Margaret's soft voice, wavering, yearning. So bring back my bonnie to me. The musicians raise their sticks. As they start the chorus, five shoes are brought down to the pub's wooden floor, sending clouds of dust into the air. Bring back thump, bring back thump, bring back my Barney. With each round, the chorus quickens, the shoes beat faster, stronger. Margaret no longer feels the weight of the stick she's holding. When she looks down at her hands, they are soft, smooth. Bring back, bring back. Next to her, Frank's tangled dark hair falls across his face as he sways in time to the beat. Bob is smiling a wide, perfect smile. Bring back. The room is drowning in sound, a storm crashing against rocks. Rising above the beat, Scores of voices join in song. Margaret raises her hand to her hair and pulls away the clip, sending a rush of curls around her shoulders. In the corner of the room, she sees him holding out his hand. When his remarkable talents were first spotted, Sammy Elzafar was just 13, or possibly 14. Sammy had arrived in England from Syria with no passport, no family and no English. He was given a place at the local secondary school and by all accounts he had a hard time fitting in. No surprise in that all alone in the world and having witnessed who knew what horrors back in his war-torn homeland. He didn't speak much about it. He didn't speak much about anything. It wasn't until one day at After School Club, the repository for kids whose parents didn't trust them to go home on their own, that Sammy's skills were discovered. After School Club was set up with tables for students to complete homework or to read quietly, but also, under certain conditions, to use the school's PS4. Sammy never got to use it, being too shy and non-verbal to ask and too weird to be invited by anyone else. So Sammy would stand out and watch the other kids playing it, hovering behind them and humming. It used to irritate the piss out of them. One day, someone gave in and offered Sammy the handset, suggesting that he could have a fucking go then. The hope had no doubt been that Sammy would be killed off within seconds and then stop bugging them. That was not what happened. Sammy made what at first appeared to be a total noob move, landing in the notoriously contested drop at Tilted Towers, thrown into a melee of other players charging about, building ramps to the sky and shooting each other in the face. Rather than getting shot within seconds, as everyone had expected, 
Sammy ran and hid and built and seemed to be able to find chests as if operating an internalised pinpoint geolocation system. He no-scoped three players before anyone watching had even noticed they were there. He trap-boxed a ghoul trooper so fast the screen was virtually a blur, a blur that ended with the ghoul trooper 576 eliminated and an uneasy feeling descending over the watching crowd of dumbstruck teenage boys. Twenty minutes later, for his final move, he triple ramp pushed a technique and a black knight, neither of whom appeared to have a clue what had hit them before they were clinically dispatched. The events of this bizarre afternoon were retold over and over again. Because of all that was to happen to Sammy afterwards, and although the accounts differed in the details, they all agreed on one point. What happened that day when Sammy played Fortnite was a total balls-out mindfuck. This boy who'd arrived in the country six months earlier with nothing but the clothes he stood up in. This boy who'd spent most of his life in a place without the basic infrastructure that could supply him with running water, an education, or even reliable Wi-Fi. This boy who did his most advanced schoolwork with a prit stick and a pair of blunt-tipped safety scissors. This guileless, klutzy refugee kid had faced off against 99 other Fortnite players who probably spent upwards of five hours a day glued to their screens, and he'd lasered them all like a pro. Sammy's remarkable feat soon came to the attention of Tyrone, one of the teaching assistants at the school. Tyrone played Fortnite himself, but as a decidedly ancient 26-year-old, he knew his days as a player were numbered but he could see that Sammy was in possession of some next-level talent and saw an opportunity to help bring on the new generation and maybe make some money. After watching Sammy play a few more times, to be sure his faultless game wasn't a fluke, Tyrone put the wheels in motion to enter him for tournaments with cash prizes. He had to convince some people that Sammy was the real deal, which meant putting him up against a bunch of players with names like Dr. Kim Cheese and Twitch Thought So Hot, and exactly as Tyrone had said he would, his young protégé creamed them all. Within a month, Tyrone had Sammy signed up to take on the world's best at the Summer Skirmish Tournament at TwitchCon in San Jose. At TwitchCon, Sammy sailed through the first few rounds of the tournament, and Tyrone had started to grow in confidence that his boy was in with a shot of taking down the big prize. By the end of the second day, Sammy had succeeded in earning considerable respect for his hyper-aggressive and intuitive gameplay while simultaneously marking himself out as a three-sigma oddball among an entire conference of socially awkward weirdos. But it was the last day of the three-day event that saw Sammy hit his peak. In the final game of the tournament, needing only two points to take the overall crown, he'd fought an epic battle with the fan favourite, I Kills Your Boy, bringing the conference centre's 5,000-strong audience to their feet in a frenzy of screaming, finger and thumb jammed against forehead loser signs and ludicrous dance moves. One second before Sammy was taken out, he managed to one-pump I Kills Your Boy, giving him his fifth kill of the game and the vital points he needed. Sammy walked off stage with the grand prize of $250,000. When Sammy and Tyrone returned to London, it didn't take long for their story to get picked up by the gaming community, and soon everyone wanted a piece of the refugee wonder geek. Tyrone soon discovered that Sammy was not the easiest of clients to work with. Sammy was not naturally outward-facing, 
and in interviews and public appearances, it was Tyrone, who'd quit his job as a TA to manage Sammy full-time, who had to do most of the heavy lifting. Then something happened that no one had expected. Sammy became a political football. Tyrone and Sammy received an invitation to some discreet offices in Whitehall. The government of the day, having recognised that Sammy appealed to a demographic that they'd hitherto failed to connect with, plied the pair of them with food and drink, with promises of meeting the PM, and with earnest entreaties to do something worthwhile for the country, all of which rebounded without making a dent. Then one of the younger members of the team said they felt certain that if Sammy got on board with the programme, they could make some calls and get him turned into his own Fortnite skin. Gamer immortality. It worked. Soon Sammy was being taken on tour around Britain in a huge bus with his picture on the side, to meet the people, to show them his talents, to ring the bell for hope and change. If Tyrone had found representing Sammy on the gamer circuit hard going, his new handlers found managing their client when meeting the non-gaming public required some innovative tactics. Sammy was a nightmare to work with, and when faced with questions about his rise to fame from such humble beginnings, he would make openly racist comments about other Syrians, whom he clearly regarded as venal, feckless and asinine, although these were very much not the words he used. And then, Sammy vanished. For two weeks he went dark. No one seemed to know where he was. The story that most people believed was that he'd been nabbed by Google's Deep Mind crew. Ever since Sammy's extraordinary gaming ability had come to light, a number of organisations had been keen to have a look at what was going on inside his head. So for two weeks, it was thought that Sammy was having this shit MRI'd out of him in some off-grid facility in order to look for clues buried deep in his neural networks. When Sammy showed up again, two weeks to the day after he'd dropped off the radar, he didn't have much to say about where he'd been, except that the snacks had been really, really good. After he'd reappeared... Sammy's handlers had decided to use him for a final big push to win the hearts and minds of the British people. They would stage a public moment of hope. The president of Syria had been invited to the UK, and the showpiece event would be a meet and greet outside number 10, with Sammy brought along to be reunited with the father of his homeland and show that, young or old, everyone mattered. When the time came for Sammy to shake hands with the Syrian president in front of the world's media... Everything ran like clockwork. The president shook hands with Sammy, and when that had gone off smoothly, in a carefully orchestrated, spontaneous-looking move, the president opened his arms to invite a hug from his poor lost kinsman. And then just as fast as Sammy had trap-boxed the ghoul trooper all those months ago, before anyone knew what was happening, Sammy had punched the president of Syria in the stones with every ounce of his teenage might, It made the top story on every news outlet that night and for most of the next week. It became the most viewed YouTube clip of all time. After that, Sammy disappeared from public view again. This time for good. By the time the truth about Sammy came out, everyone had lost interest. It was a former Google employee who confirmed that the Deep Mind guys had snatched Sammy and explained why, after two weeks with him, they weren't interested in him or his brain. The real reason why Sammy had been able to play a game that required so much skill when he'd never played it before was because he had, in fact, played it before. A lot. 
It turned out that when he wasn't going to school back home in Aleppo, because his school had been destroyed by shelling along with all the other schools, he'd been befriended by a British squaddy station nearby. The squaddy had seen Sammy searching through rubbish heaps and had taken it upon himself to help. To begin with, he brought him food, then some clothes and a few toys. Then he'd managed to get hold of a PS4 and set it up for Sammy within the range of the base's Wi-Fi. When Sammy had been telling his friends at DeepMind about this, he'd estimated that he'd started playing Fortnite when he was about seven years old. It didn't take the powers of their AI to work out that this meant, what with Sammy having no school to go to, that he'd spent somewhere in the region of 20,000 hours honing his Fortnite skills, which is why DeepMind didn't think they could learn much from him. He was good at Fortnite not because of some neural aberration, but because playing Fortnite was pretty much all he'd done for seven years of his life. The ex-Googler said that he thought he knew why Sammy had gone for the Syrian president too. The squaddy had visited Sammy now and then when he was off duty, playing Fortnite with him and chatting. Or at least the squaddy had chatted and Sammy had apparently listened. One of the things Sammy had recalled about those days was that his soldier buddy had often said if he ever got the chance to meet the president of Syria, he knew exactly what he'd like to do to him. The squaddy hadn't got the chance to meet the president of Syria, but Sammy had clearly never forgotten his old friend's greatest wish.